Friends and loved ones, welcome to Unjali Vision, a twice-monthly television review and interview podcast hosted by me, Anjali Misra. Each episode, I will offer my best analysis of current shows across multiple platforms and genres and interview a guest on their favorite TV show or current obsession. Come for the intersectional feminist critiques of popular media. Stay for the surprisingly deep conversations with folks from a variety of backgrounds about what they love or hate to watch. Airing on the Trident Network. Hello and welcome. Yay. Here we are. Thank you for joining me. We have a great episode ahead of us. My guest this episode is a good friend, Corey Lynn, who is also a Chicago-based community organizer and artist. And we're going to be talking about, very in-depth, about the Showtime TV series Yellow Jackets. But before I get to that, just wanted to lay out the rest of the agenda today. I'm going to be letting you know what else I'm watching. Highlights, lowlights, the good, the bad, the streaming from some new recent episodes of currently airing TV shows that I'm watching, as well as a few shows that I binged so that you wouldn't have to. I'll also take a little bit of time to do a deep dive, an annotated viewing guide, if you will, about some Easter egg type stuff. And then we'll move on to my guest interview. I also realized that this is maybe a good time to give my credentials, like, why should you be listening to me? So if you don't know me, or honestly, if you do know me, you don't have to take my word for it. You can watch the shows yourself. But I will say that I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. If it helps you to trust me more, I have an English degree. I have some published media critiques on the internet. I just really like TV shows, and a lot of you have told me that you like talking to me about it, so here we are. Okay, without further ado, let's get into it. Quick TV viewing roundup as of mid-April 2023. If you like serial adaptations of contemporary metafictitious novels, I, in that case, would highly recommend The Power currently airing on Amazon Prime. So if you're not familiar, The Power is about girls between the ages of 12 and 19 from around the world who evolve to develop an organ in their chest that allows them to emit bursts of electricity. And it totally creates chaos around the globe. And although I have not read the novel, the series focuses on the stories and lives of a few specific young women in different parts of the world as they navigate this emerging power, as well as what that means for like global politics and social structures and society, etc. So far, so good. Pretty well-told story. And that probably has... I'm assuming a lot to do with the fact that the source material is a driving factor in the quality of the series itself. 
if you liked Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, you will probably like Lucky Hank, another AMC Plus series starring Bob Odenkirk. Uh, he plays a community college English professor and chair of the English department having a midlife crisis, but in true Bob Odenkirk fashion is very compelling about it while also being funny. Again, another So Far So Good series. Only a couple episodes have aired. And uh, yeah, I'm going to hang in there and see what happens. New season of Ted Lasso has been exceptional. It's gotten mixed reviews. Folks are saying it's feeling a little stale. I think that if you have a good formula, might as well stick with it. But yeah, I'm going to hang in there with Ted Lasso as well. Now for the bad part of the good, the bad, the streaming. What am I not enjoying? Dear listeners, I would not recommend Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies on Paramount+. Plus. It's like a prequel to the Grease franchise that sets up the exactly what the title says, the Rise of the Pink Ladies at Rydell High School. The show is trying to do a lot. It's trying to be a part like original musical with all of these new songs. And it's trying to tell this feminist story about these young women finding their, like, independence and identities in, like, 1960s America. But, yeah, it doesn't do any one of those things particularly well. Yeah, it's just super messy. It's all over the place. The music's not particularly good. The storylines of each of the Pink Lady characters just feel a little flat and superficial unfortunately, would not recommend, especially if you enjoy musical-type shows. Instead, watch the new Hulu series, Up Here, which is a musical comedy love story series starring Carlos Valdez, who was on The Flash, and then Mae Whitman, who is, like, beloved from shows like Good Girls and Parenthood, and is Anne from Arrested Development. They all do their own singing, and it's just like a really sweet, lovely story set in New York in the 90s about two people who fall in love and are their own obstacles to finding happiness. As far as a recent binge-worthy show, I'm going to give a controversial opinion and say check out Swarm on Prime Video, which is described as a satirical comedy horror thriller TV show co-produced and co-written by Donald Glover and Janine Nabbers, obviously some of the folks behind the award-winning show Atlanta. And it's basically like a ripped-from-the-headlines sort of story about a young woman from Houston who goes on a rage-filled criminal rampage in order to get closer to her favorite R&B singer. Dominique Fishback plays the main character. She was absolutely brilliant in not only this limited series, but folks will recognize her from Judas and the Black Messiah as well. Just like such a talent. So good. Honestly feel like she's what made this series work. I think anyone else playing the main role would not have given it the like gravity that she gave the character just so good. 
finally, as promised, your annotated viewing guide for the month of April. Do download using your favorite music streaming service the soundtrack slash playlist for the Amazon Prime series Class of 07. If you're not familiar, Class of 07 is a Australian TV series that aired this year about a group of women at their high school reunion from the Class of 07 at an all-girls Catholic school who get stranded at their old school during an apocalyptic flood that submerges most of the world underwater. And yet, it is a comedy. What really elevates this genre-bendy show is that every episode features music from 2007 that would have been popular on a teenage girl's iPod Nano at the time. Just, like, great throwbacks to, like, indie favorites like Vampire Weekend and Wolf Mother and Gossip and then just, like, bangers that we all, for whatever reason, loved, like Nelly, <laughs> Bare Naked Ladies. Oh, man, such a gem. So silly, so great. Yeah, so check out the soundtrack slash playlist for Class of 07. And you know what? While you're at it, watch Class of 07. And there you have it, my friends, almost everything I have been watching. But now it's time to kick it to my interview with Corey Lynn. My guest today is Corey Lynn, a Chicago-based artist and activist and a friend of mine. And we are going to be talking about the show Yellow Jackets on Showtime. This is an incredibly popular show. And just before we dive into questions for Corey, wanted to give a brief overview of what and just the premise of the show, which is in 1996, a New Jersey high school girls soccer team travels to Seattle for a national tournament. While flying over Canada, their plane crashes deep in the Ontario wilderness, and the surviving team members are left stranded for 19 months. The series chronicles their attempts to stay alive as some of the team members are driven to cannibalism. Not a spoiler you find out in the first episode. It also focuses on their lives. 25 years later, in 2021 and beyond, following their rescue. Corey, as a sci-fi fan and lover of this show, I'm so happy to have you to talk about it. Would love to just hear what brought you to Yellow Jackets. How did you find out about the show? And what about the first season made it so compelling to you? Yay. Thank you, Anjali. I'm very excited to be here talking to you officially versus just you and me shooting the shit about TV, about one of my favorite shows that is on television right now. And so I will say that I think I was like many people in which that when Yellow Jackets first came out, I was like not interested, like from the Showtime clips that I had seen and like the little headlines maybe floating around on Instagram. It was like a show about white girls and cannibalism. And I was like, I do not care. It would take a lot for you to make me care. But then they did. Usually for a TV show, like I love sci-fi. I love fantasy. I love, I don't know if it's like post-apocalyptic as a genre, but I love like creative cultural survival and speculative fiction because I don't think this is like a fantasy show. I think this is definitely like in a speculative place. 
But in general, I always start a new TV show waiting for it to be triangulated for me. Like there's a lot of suggestions out in the world. Lots of people are telling me to watch shows or read books or watch movies. And so I wait until three reliable sources recommend one show to me, especially if they're coming from different interest points, then I'll be like seeing triangulated. Now I will zoom in. And that's what happened to me with Yellow Jackets is that around episode four or five, I definitely remember my sister, who is not a big violence fan. Big shout out to my sister, Jamie, who like told me she was like, you would love this show. You should watch Yellow Jackets. I think I had seen online that many people did the same thing where after about four or five episodes had come out, the plot was enough. It was beyond the sensationalism of cannibalism. That was the thing that I was the most kind of put off by is that usually when people do cannibalism shows, it's gratuitous, it's extremely violent, and it's there for shock factor. Yellow Jackets is a show that's doing cannibalism in a nuanced way, but it's not the thing that's the most scary about Yellow Jackets. Like the thing that's horrifying is teen girldom. That's the thing that you are exploring through Yellow Jackets is both how teen girlness and girlness is in of itself a terror and lives inside of us. And like, mm. I love horror pieces where the thing that you're afraid of at the end of the day is the potential of yourself. That's what Yellow Jackets is sitting in. It's also a, an amazing kind of time travel show in the way that it's operating in two main timelines in 2022. As adults, these survivors, an amazing cast of women processing their survival and the way that they have rebuilt their lives in the human world after this experience. To summarize, I feel like what is so powerful about Yellow Jackets is that it's living in a in-between genre space. It's very genre bendy. Like I show up to a teen girl show and I'm also coming to it like a survival show, like a mystery show, like a whodunit as we try to figure out like these key murders in the first season. And it's really funny too. There's deep aspects of horror, deep psychological themes that I think are coming through in a way where you don't feel like the cannibalism is something that is separating you from these characters. It's something where you're kind of like, oh my God, I would never do that. And then at a certain point, you're kind of like, maybe, you know, like maybe. <laughs> right. What other themes did you find particularly compelling, particularly unique to the show. I think that's something you and I have talked about too. It's just like what like sets this aside from other thriller, suspense mm -hmm. shows and even like teen shows. I think something that we have talked about, which is like the sense of reality and this as like a supernatural show. Like I think some people are describing this as a supernatural show. Yeah, there's definitely supernatural themes to it. You spend a lot of season one wondering what the big scary thing is. And there's this quote that I read from the showrunner Jonathan Lisko in an interview that I feel like summed up part of what I really like about how they handle these supernatural aspects. And so the interviewer says, and if the characters believe that magic exists, then it doesn't really matter if it's real or not. And then Lisko replies, that's right. One of the things that fascinates me the most is excavating an exploration of dread. Dread can be the fear that someone's going to come out of the woods and hit you over the head. But there's also the existential dread which occurs inside of you. 
And if that dread is being created by neurotransmitters or mental stressors or your own psychosis, what is the difference? It's just as real in some ways as if an actual monster were to come out of the woods. Oh my God. So I feel like that that felt really clear to me in the show. I feel like that there's this kind of quote unquote real explanation that a lot of people are looking for in the recaps and the discussion every episode when strange things or supernatural things happen. And I feel like the showrunners did an amazing job where there is some sort of like plausible thing that could happen that there would be no supernatural interaction and that thing could occur, quote unquote, in a real way. And if you choose to believe that it is a supernatural thing, that there are spirits involved, that there is a greater haunting happening, then there's an explanation for that as well. And both of those viewpoints are supported at the same time throughout the show. One of the things that makes this show so unique and so special is this idea of perceived reality. And I guess like something like a thread I want to pull on too is another thing you and I have talked about is the perspectives and identities of these main characters who we again get to see trying to survive in the wilderness and then 25 years later as like women in their like 30s and 40s who are like recovering from trauma etc but like all of this is defined by their like own personal identities right like Mm -hmm. backgrounds there are like nine main cast members who are like this group of like girls on a soccer team and then like their assistant coach who survives and then the son of the head coach who was also on the trip and also mm-hmm. survives and there's dynamics there rushes there's tensions there's catty girls leaving some out emerging queerness i'm yeah. so much more attached to the cabin dynamics than i am to the adult dynamics sometimes there's more of like a mystery in the cabin still but like i love watching the seeds of all these dynamics build. Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts about season two shaping up, unfolding. What are your like hopes for season two? What are your predictions based on what we know from season one? So I had made this like really big prediction for season one, which was that included me doing a lot of bare math, like me trying to figure out how much like caloric meat and fat was on like one big black bear and like how long it could feed. And I was wrong. Like I thought that they were going to be able to last the winter on this bear. I was like, bears are huge. There's like a ton of meat. But then clearly episode two, they're running low on bear. So, but I think the one thing, like I think anything could happen. I'm open to my mind being blown, very attentive, like thinking a lot about Nat, young Nat, and her relationship with Travis. I think that's a, a character who I feel very drawn to and protective of. But the main thing I'm thinking about is definitely the way that the plot and the writers are going to hold Lottie's character. Lottie is someone who was more of a side character for the beginning of season one, was introduced as being someone who was a very rich and sheltered girl who was taking medication for schizophrenia and her medication ran out while they're out in the woods. And then now in season two, we see her true cult transformation. 
I'm paying attention to this general in-betweenness of how the biomedical Western system treats neurodivergent folks and the way that indigenous people, different cultures from around the world, and just like different families have held neurodivergence and its meaning and its yeah, significance. Something that I'm definitely interested in is, is Lottie going to be a villain or not? And I think that a lot of my orientation to this is coming from, I think that I've been listening to some podcasts, like there's this podcast, Too Many Wings, and there's one speaker who is on it specifically, Vesper Moore, who is a queer indigenous activist and writer who talks about the ways that our current medical system treats people who experience psychosis. And we see Lottie experience that in season two, episode one. And I think the big shift in season one was seeing girls go from this set social order in a JV and like varsity soccer team to going into the woods. And that's where we saw Jackie's like downfall where it's like you were the queen in this context and now you're in the woods and you have nothing and now you're actually like no longer socially powerful in this space and we saw someone Lottie who did not have any social power in the varsity soccer dumb become extremely significant in the woods and seeing her now in season two transition out of that space and seeing how hard it was for her to return to this space. Like you empathize a lot with her, but you're also like, but dude, we need to start a cult girl. Maybe not. And so I think that my hope is that we as the audience, like maybe not Lottie as a character, but we as the audience can sit more in that in-between space of being what would it look like for us to have care that in our survival sees these spiritual messages that maybe our community is receiving as valid and important and that should be held, but also having accountability over like how those people who are receiving those messages are given power in this space. How do we hold more in between space and accountability for these spiritual roles that someone like Lottie is playing? Yeah, yeah. On the surface, it's very much, I feel like the show could be read as, oh, there were seeds of these women's vulnerabilities and neuroses as young women that like manifested and became monstrosities for them as adults. And like that with Taisa and like mm -hmm. that with, it could be argued, Lottie, mm -hmm. the way that they wielded like their girlhood trauma into these adult like manifestations of Thaisa's behavior with the family dog and like Lottie like starting a cult. I think that's a very surface level analysis and you could just leave it at that and not really dig deeper. But the underlying analysis, I think you are getting at that. And I think that some writers that you and I have both read and like maybe some other sort of media critics are like getting at that like sub-analysis, which is mm. that it's not just about this superficial idea. It's about more than that. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like it's less about is Thaisa and Lottie good or bad people? And I feel like it's like more, oh, how are they transitioning to and from these horrifying places that any of us could go to? I should backtrack too for listeners because as a reminder and as like context that Thaisa is throughout the first season through flashbacks of the 
soccer team and then her navigating the surviving the wilderness and then also the present day of her as like an adult woman who's like running for Senate in New Jersey (laughs) in 2021. You see this trajectory of her as a character where she has like always been, I don't think haunted is the right word, but like she sleepwalks and she also has these like lucid nightmares even like when they were like in the wilderness she would become feral in the night (laughs) some of the traumas that these young women have experienced predate this like defining incident right these like 19 months stranded in the canadian wilderness Uh, how was their trauma like amplified in (laughs) these like survival circumstances yeah and i like lottie and taisa stick out to me as characters a lot like I think in episode one and like through their many episodes in season one that both of them are mixed race that they both experience things that I would consider hauntings in their childhood before they leave Taisa specifically seeing a presence with her grandmother and then Lottie having a premonition moment with her family in the car crash and that's something that like I have also, I'm also attuned to from a racial lens that, yeah, Tyson and Lottie are both mixed race. Tyson is black and white and is a black woman. And Lottie, the character seems to be white and Latino, even though, yeah, I know that the actress is played, who is playing that is a Maori mixed actress. And there's something that my friend had shared with me that was research about this concept that I believe Black women have brought up, which is turning ghosts into ancestors. And that just being like, I don't think that the showrunners are intentionally layering in these hauntings to these girls who have multiple like diasporic histories. But what has happened is that the these two girls who are experiencing these hauntings have probably a lot of trauma in their lineages that is unaddressed. And now the two of them, for by whatever means, which is like the intense stress of living and surviving, now I feel like you're right that now these hauntings are becoming more prevalent. And I'm interested to see what is the process of making peace with them, if at any. Yeah, this is a great question, especially because we do see that these quote-unquote hauntings are continuing to inform their adult lives. Like, again, Mm -hmm. beyond, like, after they are rescued and after 25 years have gone by and they have formed, like, adult lives and relationships and, like, all of this other, all of the other sort of intricacies of life have happened to them. They're still experiencing, yeah, whatever you want to call it these hauntings so super interesting yes super interesting yeah i will also say that like we you and i have talked about having a mid-season recap because at the time of this recording we're only two episodes into the second season any other predictions or like i guess like hopes maybe not only hopes but like things that you wish you could have seen in season one that you think could have been done better I don't know. I'm obsessed with one. I'm obsessed with it. I don't think it needs anything to change. I have only more to read. Like, I'll just read deeper into the Reddits and the Autostraddle recaps. I'm definitely thinking about Javi going into season two. I'm wondering what's 
keeping that tree stump warm. I'm thinking a lot about their nutritional deficiencies. But besides that, I am just down for the ride. Two things that we didn't talk about, a couple of things that we didn't talk about, which was like with the like the racial, gender and queer lens, like many shows that I watch, I am coming with a little bit of a racial, gender, queerness lens. And there's so much that we could dig into with Yellow Jackets. I think that the, like originally one of the things that had not drawn me to the show is that like season one, especially was like a predominantly white girl show at first. But now actually like being into it and being into the content, like I really appreciate that about the show, that there are queer characters and characters of color that we yeah are given in support and don't immediately die for like people of color because it's so fucking traumatic what they're experiencing. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing that perspective, especially because... I would say, again, like some of the things that have been celebrated in the show by Western Hollywood media and TV critics and like TV news sources have been particularly like the white characters and like Melanie Linsky, the actress who plays Shauna. I love her so much. And like she like her flowers are so overdue. Like she's been acting since she was herself a teenager. She's like an Australian actress and did this really incredible film with Kate Winslet when they were teenagers. And yeah, anyway, I have followed her career. She's incredible. And again, I'm not saying that like she doesn't deserve her flowers, but like the emphasis has been on like her character and then Christina Ricci's character and then Juliette Lewis's character. These are all like white women, white actresses who got their start as child actors. I would not think it was a stretch to say that their characters as adults are informed by their experiences as actual teen girls in the 90s. I agree. I feel like there's some sort of like time travel, time collapse that happens between the young characters and their old ones and seeing like Melanie Lynn interact with the Shauna who the character the actress who plays her younger self and seeing how obsessed with each other they are (laughs) oh yes there is also an actress time collapse that is happening where in some ways I do feel like they're taking care of their younger selves in the process in the way that their their characters on the show are yeah mirroring or embodying the same thing Yeah. And I think that that's appealing to people, right? Especially if you grew up watching Western media, like someone like me, who like, that's the thing that drew me to Yellow Jackets. Like, I came for Christina Ricci and Juliette Lewis, and like, I stayed for all of the BIPOC and queer representation. That is the reality. So I came for nuanced cannibalism discourse. (laughs) And I stayed because I'm legitimately a cult member like i would join lottie's cult (laughs) that's yeah that's the meme right that follows this episode is would you or would you not join lottie's cult would you or or would you not eat jackie like yeah yeah (laughs) these are the questions so i i would definitely eat jackie i'm sorry to (laughs) all respect to jackie but i would definitely eat jackie by the end i was like that ear looks like like a little piece of turkey bacon like Uh you're and you're pregnant, you're two trimesters in, 
It's yeah. believable cannibalism. And that's what I feel like is so magical about this show. Oh, my God. So great. Such a great way to end this conversation. <laughs> I do want to ask, I'm curious with this season two, right? We're two episodes in. Based on timing, we don't know what happens to Shauna's baby. Yeah. The daughter that she has with Jess now is only 16 or 17. Yeah. And so she has, a, does she have a 24-year-old kid out there somewhere? Or do they eat the fetus? Or do they eat the fetus? Showtime. Let's see how far you will go. That is the question. We're definitely tracking the ticking time bomb, which is Shauna's pregnancy. Yeah. I'm just thinking about so many shows where, or even movies, where we meet a young pregnant woman and then the baby becomes important later. What will happen to this baby? Thank you for inviting me to be in conversation about, yeah, cannibal teens. <laughs> Yay! Thank you so much for being a guest. I look forward to many more Yellow Jackets conversations. And yes, this was awesome. Yeah. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Thanks for tuning in, friends. I have been your host, Anjali Misra. <laughs> Today's guest was Corey Lynn. You can learn more about Corey's work by checking out her website at www.corylynn.co. Editing for Anjali Vision is provided by Audrey Cornell. And the Anjali Vision podcast is brought to you by the Trident Network. Thanks again and see you in two weeks. Anjali Vision is part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com.